Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of October 2nd, 2017. On this week's show, Jameel Smith will join us to talk about the shifting politics of the protest in the NFL and owners' attempts to co-opt and soften the message of those protests. Joe Nocera of Bloomberg View will also be here to help us answer any number of questions about the FBI's investigation of the money-changing hands between shoe companies, coaches, and players in college basketball. The most important of those questions being, why is the FBI investigating the money-changing hands between shoe companies, coaches, and players in college basketball? And finally, Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer will join us to preview the baseball playoffs in which such teams as, let's say, the Minnesota Twins will try to win a big trophy with flags on it that is not named after a particular person. Good luck. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, the latter of which is, along with A Few Good Men, the Sean Colvin album, A Few Small Repairs, and the board game, A Few Acres of Snow, mm. just one of many items you can purchase that begin with a few. To learn more, go to google.com mm. and type in the phrase, a few. Stefan? I've already acquired all of those. I'm very excited today, not to shift the focus here, but we had two scorigamis yesterday. We all have our own things we want to talk about. I did my after ball last week. I feel it's incumbent on me to let everyone know in case they have not yet followed at NFL underscore scorigami, that there were two scorigamis yesterday, the Texans over the Titans, 57-14. And then last night, I stayed up to watch the end of this game for no other reason than to see if it would be scorigami, the Seahawks over the Colts, 46 to 18. That's a great score. So Al Michaels of Sunday Night Football is famous for giving sort of like backdoor, backhanded references to whether teams cover the gambling line. If Stefan were the announcer, it would just all be about scorigami. As everyone at home knows, this score is very important. <laughs> we're at a 92.6% chance of scorigami. No, you got to be more subtle than that ah. for all your scorigami heads true, back home. True, so, true, You know, the secret handshake of scorigami. 
On Sunday in NFL stadiums, a lot of players sat and kneeled and raised their fists during the national anthem, though noticeably fewer than had done so the previous week in the immediate aftermath of Donald Trump's rant in Alabama about how the players who followed Colin Kaepernick's lead in protesting for racial justice are sons of bitches. Among the demonstrators this week were eight Seahawks defensive linemen, among them Michael Bennett, who all sat on the bench during the Star-Spangled Banner. 30 49ers players knelt with their hands on their hearts while their teammates stood behind them. The Eagles' Malcolm Jenkins once again raised his fist, which his white teammate uh, Chris Long responded to by putting his arm around Jenkins in support. And Raiders running back Marshawn Lynch, who in the pregame was wearing an Everybody versus Trump t-shirt, continued to sit on the bench and continued not to explain why, because he is Marshawn Lynch. A week after kneeling before the anthem with owner Jerry Jones among them, the Cowboys all stood this week. And the Saints, who were playing in London, followed the Cowboys' lead in kneeling before the anthem, then standing together in a show of unity. This after 10 New Orleans players had kneeled last week. In a piece for the Washington Post, Jameel Smith wrote before this weekend's uh, protests, what teams do together speaks loudest and most showed little to indicate that they're in this fight beyond this past weekend. The clear message was that the NFL would like some nice visuals out of all this hubbub and maybe a little First Amendment magic dust on its logo. There was no sign that the league wanted to take a substantive stand on police violence or, heaven forbid, have to give Kaepernick a job. Jamil Smith is a political journalist. He was also a producer at NFL Films, and Jamil joins us now. Thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. So your background in NFL Films and your um, you know career writing about politics makes you fairly uniquely qualified to talk about this stuff, Jamil. And I found um, your piece really interesting, and especially your comments about how the NFL is so obsessed with the visual and with Jerry Jones first and then other owners to follow, just the way that these gestures have been orchestrated by ownership has been really interesting to watch and frankly, kind of depressing to watch. Indeed, it has. I mean, what you're seeing, I think, is an orchestration of these, I guess, demonstrations in response to Donald Trump that really have obviously very little to do with the original purpose that Colin Kaepernick put forth, which is to protest police violence and other forms of systemic racism. But in, you know, in responding to Trump, they're sort of co-opting that protest and not only co-opting it, but they're also twisting it into something that just doesn't mean anything. I mean, if you want to talk about team unity, uh, if you want to express team unity, you already do that by wearing the uniforms. You don't need to lock arms. You don't need to, you know, do one uniform action as a team. Let everyone express themselves accordingly. Uh, as ESPN's reporting detailed, they weren't standing to lose major uh, sponsorships, you know, as a league behind this. Um, you know, yes, there are going to be some disgruntled fans, but there are going to be a lot of fans who are attracted to your league now because you chose to take a stand. Instead, the NFL tried to have it both ways, and I think they ended up upsetting both sides. You mentioned ESPN and Don Van Natta and Seth Wickersham of ESPN produced a really terrific TikTok about what happened the la last week after the protests in response to Trump. And the main takeaway here is that 
Roger Goodell, the commissioner of the NFL, just wanted this to go away. Um, D. Smith, the head of the Players Union, is quoted by Van Natta and Wickersham saying, it certainly was my takeaway that the commissioner was looking for a way for the protest to end. Um, and the reason for that is, Smith said, knowing the league the way I know the league, they are first and foremost concerned about the impact on their business. That's always their first concern. I mean, who are we kidding? When you put it in that context, you recognize that there is no way for the players to win here because the NFL's stated goal is to neuter this, is to make this palatable to everyone in their fan base. Right. You know that little thing that's on every NFL ticket, actually really pretty much every sporting ticket that you go to an event, and it says, like, basically, you you give up your right by entering the venue to be photographed to be used in marketing material for that league, so on and so forth. Well, the late, you know, obviously the players as employees um, have that, you know, on steroids, you know, so basically anytime they, they basically step into, you know, the field of play, which is their office, they are apparently giving up their rights to represent themselves and in, in certain ways. And I think that the, you know, owners being scared and certainly, what a lot of it is is that the owners don't understand the inherent issues that Kaepernick was talking about in the first place. Um, you know, they're worried about their bottom line. They're not invested in, you know, fighting for you know, racial justice. They are simply out there to make a buck. And they're making a buck largely off of black bodies. And they don't want to get involved with the politics of that unless it, you know, involves giving a million dollars to Trump's uh, inauguration event. But I think that they, you know, they they love to ignore things that don't approach them or don't, you know, fall into their doorstep until it does. I think a perfect example of this actually comes from the NBA. Um, the owner of my hometown Cleveland Cavaliers, Dan Gilbert, received about racist voicemails, uh, I guess, you know, in messages after LeBron James tweeted at the president, you bum, and about Stephen Curry and whatnot. It seems like he that was the time when he discovered racism, according to his quote. He was shocked at the level of racism in this country. And, and this you know, after having, LeBron James had racist graffiti spray painted on his home in Los Angeles. Dan Gilbert apparently missed that report. And also after his own players wore I Can't Breathe t-shirts on the on the floor when Eric Garner was killed. So this is this is an owner, you know, who apparently is living in a dream world, which I guess if you're a billionaire, you can afford to do that. But when it knocks on their doorstep and you know, whether it's the NFL with Trump's comments or whether it's, you know, in the NBA, I think that, you know, it's 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 high time that uh, the mostly white, rich, you know, men that are running these teams, uh, you know, really kind of get involved in, 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 in conveying a message that not only supports what their players are doing, but also recognizes the purpose behind their demonstrations. Right. And what, what I found interesting in Van Natta and Wickersham's reporting especially is that the NFL's knee-jerk response is to figure out a way to use this to our marketing advantage and at the same time to find a way to drive a wedge between the players and the union. The NFL convened a meeting of players. They invited about 20 players to come up to NFL headquarters in New York to meet with owners and management. They didn't tell D. Smith until the last minute, and he was already on the road and couldn't attend. Uh, more than a dozen players did cancel. A few did attend, but the message that the owners were sending there is farcical. 
It's that yeah. this isn't about the issues that the players want. I mean, some one of the owners proposed all the players wear a patch on their uniforms that says Team America. I mean, to, <laughs> to, to his credit, to his credit, one of the owners who was briefed on the proposal, Van Nat and Wickersham reported, said that we got to do better than that. Well, the owners, yeah. the owners all do suck. I mean, or most of them suck. But I do think uh, we should be a little bit wary of painting with a broad brush here. Stephen Ross sure. apparently said in the meeting, I hate Trump too. And it's not like all of these guys, like seven of them donated to, to the Trump inauguration, which in my book is mm-hmm. seven too many, but it's not. It's there's seven a, out of 32 or 31. There's a, there's a continuum the here and there's a spectrum and none of them have so far, I think, covered themselves in glory. But I think what made the Van Atta Wickersham piece good is that there it did reflect that there's a range of views that not every owner is like, you know, Dan Snyder, it seems like, was shouted down. He was like, we could lose a $40 million sponsorship deal. And people were like, we actually make way more money than that. And that's not a big deal. Yeah, like a million dollars <laughs> a team would not be a big hit. But, right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Jamil, your point still stands that like none of these guys is ne- is really out there strongly and supportive of his players and the ones that have gone out there like Jerry Jones, maybe Shad Khan is an exception, um, the Jags owner. But like when Jerry Jones went out there, it seems like his goal was to recast this and to neuter it, as I think Stefan said. Right. And uh, you see the owners sort of leaning on their employees to behave in a certain way that pleases them. And, you know, I mean, there's been a lot made of the sort of the corollary, uh, which I think may be a little bit exaggerated, but certainly has some relevance between team owners and players and other forms of ownership of black people in the past, let's just say. And I think that, you know, certainly you see some unfortunate, you know, reverberations of that. Uh, this, 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 this sort of, you know, quelling of, you know, of, of protest and this you know, reshaping it into this, like, this team unity thing, which doesn't mean anything. It doesn't like, there's no, there's no need to express team unity. I mean, but you, who are you doing it for Donald Trump? And so I think that, you, know, you have one organization, one out of 32 teams that seems to understand exactly what to do here. And it is to Use this opportunity to get something done, to not just make a statement, not just issue some kind of like, you know, you know, publicly vetted, you know, nice, kind thing to say that's going to make people feel good or 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 assuage those who seem to be offended by people protesting for, you know, equal rights. I think that you have, you know, the Seahawks are taking this top opportunity. They, they established an, an equality and justice for all action fund. You know, and the players are going to be, you know, f- uh, f- uh, funding this. They're asking for donations from the public. And, you know, they're trying to support education and leadership programs to help, you know, erode systemic racism, which is the exact point of the protest. Think about how easy it would be for whether it's a team owner or a head coach or the commissioner of the NFL to come out and explicitly declare what the players want and to have the players standing alongside them when they make that declaration. But the players aren't dumb either, Jamil. They recognize mm-hmm. that they are being used or that the potential that for them to be used is really high. I mean, fans still booed even when yeah. players kneeled before the anthem, even when owners yeah. were on the field this past Sunday. And the probably, I thought the most 
appropriate or interesting gesture was Cam Newton raising a black power fist after scoring a touchdown. And on top of that, the reaction of his teammate Julius Peppers after the game when he was asked about it, Peppers said, I thought it was cool. We wanted to take this out of the national anthem because that's obviously a little contentious. Cam did it on his own time. That's what everyone wants, right? So it's not as if the players don't understand that they are potentially pawns here, that they are part of some stagecraft that is intended to make the NFL seem more acceptable to its fan base. Right. The best thing about what Cam Newton did is that he punctured a hole through the critique of those who claim to oppose these protests. He didn't do it during the flag, you know, during the anthem. He didn't do it in front of the flag. Uh, he didn't do it during any of the sort of like military propaganda that precedes every NFL game. He did it in the course of showing black excellence, which was amazing. And he did it in Boston of all places. Uh, so that that to me was uh, was a symbolic thing. I, I, I would love to see more players, uh, you know, in the heat of the moment. It may be hard to remember or think about it, but I would love to see more players actually take advantage of that time, um, because especially at home when they're in there in front of their own fans to convey that message, to get people to think for just a couple seconds about something bigger than themselves. I, I was having a conversation last week with a, um, with a conservative who, who felt that the protests disrespect the flag. And that's really the entirety of his argument. And I just want to find out from folks, what is so disrespectful about kneeling, about raising a fist, about calling attention to inequities in our society? This is not a zero-sum game. If we gain some rights as black people, you folks do not lose them. <laughs> you know what I mean? It is not, it's not, it, that's not how it works. So what I feel like people need to understand is really the true purpose of it. Get away from Trump. And I think that's only going to happen when there's more sustained action on the part of teams and players. Because the, the more distance we get from his comments and the more people keep kneeling, keep protesting, the more attention is going to be brought to the actual cause. Here's the tricky thing for me around um, Cam Newton celebrating after a touchdown and around the protests more, more uh, generally. It feels to me like a capitulation to change the nature of the protest that Kaepernick um, inaugurated, even though it has been bound up in the anthem and the flag, which makes it easier to criticize and to ignore the actual cause that's being championed here. And the cause, it should be said, has been championed from the beginning very clearly, even though people mm -hmm. don't, seem, don't seem to want to hear it. So it seems to me like, all right, we won't protest during the anthem and protest the flag. It's like conceding the point that shouldn't necessarily be conceded. On the other hand, there's this poll by ESPN, the survey that they conducted, and it breaks down along very predictable racial lines strongly approve of NFL players' protests, 17% of white uh, respondents, 54% of African-American respondents. And then there's the categories in the middle, and then strongly disapprove, 48% of white respondents and 9% of African-American respondents. So mm -hmm. for me, it's just really hard because on the one hand, if you look back at the polling and statistics from the civil rights era, Jamil, you'll find the exact same polls with the exact same numbers. And people who claim, why can't you do it like Martin Luther King hated Martin Luther King. But right. for me, that just means that this is a protest. People don't, the reason to protest a thing 
is because people don't want to hear the message that you're saying, even though it needs to be said. The team unity thing and people all speaking with one voice and saying, you know, we all agree on this. That's a pep rally. That's that's not right. a protest. So the exactly. fact the fact that people are mad is in some ways an indication that it's working and in some ways an indication that it's not working and I'm confused. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think what you have here is <laughs> Perhaps a, a failure to communicate. Uh, I think, <laughs> um, I think it, it, and honest, honestly, I think, you know, you have a league that is, you know, primarily concerned with its top dollar. And I, one of the things I, I wanted to mention is that, you know, during my, I worked for the NFL for six years as a producer for NFL films, and they're known as the keepers of the flame. OK, which means that, you know, that's a it's a nice saying for, you know, they are trying to keep the mythology and the spirit of the league going through visual documentation, which is is great. Um, and I think it's a worthy endeavor. But, you know, it's also the league views us, uh, you know, when I was there and I'm sure they still do. They view us as a marketing tool. Um, they, they say, you know what, we want you to produce images that help us sell this product. And that is what the linked arms are. You know, that is that. And that's and when you think in those and you think in those terms, you are not thinking about protest. You are not thinking about actually upsetting people You're, because that's what inherently protest is supposed to do. I don't know of any effective protest that makes everyone feel warm inside, um, you know, that makes everyone feel comfortable or especially makes the powerful feel comfortable. Uh, and that's what the powerful at the, in the NFL seem to fail to understand. I've got a couple more thoughts. And one is that this puts an enormous amount of pressure on the players themselves, not all of whom want to be part of a larger movement. And it disrespects, I think, the great mass of athletes in, the, in, in this league. They end up becoming one thing or another, supporters or opponents. They end up becoming sons of bitches or true Americans. They are smarter and more thoughtful than that. And I think that the players are going to have to find a way to navigate their way out of this dilemma. They're being asked, as Liz Clark noted in a piece in the Washington Post over the weekend, they're being asked to sort of figure out a bunch of things. Where do they stand on racial injustice, freedom of expression, the right to push back against the president, um, how they feel about the anthem and the flag. It puts a, a lot of, of unfair pressure on them. And now the way they react is interpreted politically. If these, mm -hmm. if kneeling and raised fists and hands on shoulders diminishes over the subsequent weeks, well, then people will just say, see, the, the NFL won. These, these guys are backing down. The players are wrong. Um, and, and it all gets filtered, as I think you tweeted over the weekend, Jamil. It all gets filtered. This conversation, which should be about race and injustice, gets filtered through how white people think about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, 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 and in, a, in a way, that's a bad thing. But in a way, this is actually a good thing. Um, and I'll tell you how. You know, in my piece for Washington Post, I wrote about how we need white men, especially wealthy white men, to step up and join the fight against white supremacy. I mean, the wealthy white men, by and large, um, either enable or empower white supremacy. Uh, it's not true of everyone. Obviously, there are wonderful, you know, benefactors, uh, you know, people who get it, people who are involved. But when you talk about the NFL, when you talk about people who are seeking to avoid stances, 
um, I think it's actually okay to press these guys to think a little bit harder about the realities that their teammates have to endure when they leave the locker room. Because when they take those uniforms off, they are big black dudes in big, nice vehicles getting targeted. Uh, and sorry, it's it's not too much, to, I think, to ask those guys to, you know, to step up, to to have an opinion. You don't necessarily have to put your hand on a shoulder or kneel um, or speak out. You can just say, I understand this is this is, you know, inspiring me to learn more about this issue. Um, I'm trying to become a more educated citizen, and I encourage everyone who's listening to do the same. You don't have to be a freedom fighter. It's welcome. But, you know, you just have to become a more educated citizen. You have to exercise critical thinking. And given how smart these guys are, and I know I've interviewed a bunch of them, they can handle that task. Jamil Smith's piece for The Washington Post. It's the headline, How the NFL Watered Down Colin Kaepernick's Protest. You should look for that. Jamil, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to the FBI and college basketball, a heads up in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Jameel Smith will be back and we'll be discussing the WNBA finals between the Minnesota Lynx and LA Sparks, which are heading to a decisive game five in Minnesota later this week. If you want to hear that conversation, please join Slate Plus for $35 a year. It's a low price. If you do so, you can get a Slate tote bag and you can get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. It will long be remembered as a huge scandal in college sports. Outside forces funneling cash to a legendary program at a powerhouse school to recruit the best players in the country. Adidas in Louisville? Nope. That would be Walter Camp, the coach who invented modern football in the early 1900s at Yale, where he controlled a $100,000 slush fund that he used to pay players. Ever since the conceit of amateurism in college sports, where everyone gets paid in cash except for the players, has encouraged an illicit underground economy. Last week, the federal government decided that the economy was criminal. It charged 10 people, including an Adidas executive, player agents, and assistant coaches at four schools, Auburn, South Carolina, Arizona, and USC, with wire fraud, conspiracy, and bribery for trying to steer prospects to agents, financial advisors, and schools. The Adidas rep was accused of paying a player $100,000 to attend Louisville, whose coach Rick Pitino was effectively fired after the case was announced. Joe Nocera is a columnist for Bloomberg View and the co-author of Indentured, the inside story of the rebellion against the NCAA. He is with us now. Hey, Joe. Hey, fellas. 
Thank you for coming on. Uh, you led your Bloomberg column about the indictments by asking, when exactly did the Federal Bureau of Investigation decide that NCAA regulations were the law of the land? This is the nub of this startling case, isn't it? On what grounds did right. the federal government decide that this behavior suddenly was illegal and prosecutable? Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Why? Uh, I think it's a little inexplicable as to why they would choose this to bore in on, but they did. And you know, they had a they had a whistleblower. They had a guy that they could turn. I'm sure he told them, "Hey, fellas, I can get you. Uh, I can get you some high-profile basketball players and coaches." And 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 they bit. Um, they're one of the ways they're doing this is by saying that. Um, uh, because this took place at a federally subsidized, um, uh, government subsidized uh, university, that you know, exchange of uh, uh, the exchange of money is illegal on its face because it's unauthorized. And there is something called Section 666. I have now learned uh, in the Federal Criminal Code uh, that is that they're using to justify this. I would say. It is um, it's a creative use uh, of the federal code, and it reminds me very much, although nobody else has made this analogy, to the insider trading cases that uh, Preet Bharara brought. That's this is the same office uh, that eventually got overturned by the Second Circuit. Yeah, that's really interesting. It seems to me, and to a lot of folks that have written about this that the FBI is doing the NCAA's work for it, that this is an investigation that the NCAA would have wanted to do if it had the resources and the investigators to do it. And the the, FBI has decided we're going to be an adjunct office of like the NCAA and just help them out. Well, I think the NCAA is pretty humiliated by this. Uh, uh, This should be in its wheelhouse uh, and it's not. Uh, they they missed it completely, and and everybody knows that the sneaker companies are uh, funneling money to athletes to get them to go to quote unquote their universities. Uh, this is hardly a surprise. I would say I, I did want to point out. I do think there's two categories of things going on here. Whether or not it's illegal, what those assistant coaches did was really really slimy and really took advantage of the trust of the athletes because you know they were basically saying sign with this agent or sign with this financial planner because he's my friend and I trust him when in fact his rationale is they were paying him and he was he had no idea these coaches generally had no idea whether this agent was any good or not in fact i believe they weren't even they were just trying to become agents so they did they took advantage of the trust of the athlete and really it was a it was a terrible terrible disservice Whereas, whereas the Adidas uh, marketing guy who was paying uh, Brian Bowen, he's the player from the University of Louisville, uh, playing $100,000 to go to an Adidas school, to me, that's more like a college scholarship. A I mean, signing it, bonus. It, it was like, so what? You know, it, this happens all the time. I mean, on, on these grounds, you know, you should have arrested uh, Reggie Bush's parents uh, for living in that house for free. That was given them by the by the the guy who wanted to become their agent and created the whole scandal at USC. I mean, this happens every day, and if you criminalize that, I mean, you're basically criminalizing a form of scholarship or a form of signing bonus. That's exactly what you're doing. And not only that, Joe. I mean, these sorts of stories have been told in great detail 
in magazine, television, and book form for decades by journalists like Alexander Wolf and Armin Katayan and George Dorman and many, many others. Suddenly, there's a come to Jesus moment on the part of the federal government. Right. I, th- th- there's another. Here's another reason I don't think this is going to end well for the for the government. Um, with, I don't know if you remember Norby Walters. He was this uh, fly-by-night agent. He had been a big shot in Hollywood, had been a, been a big Hollywood agent, decided to burst into college sports. And the way he did it was by paying players and giving them automobiles in return for uh, the, the promise that they would sign with him when they became pros. And when some of them didn't sign with him, he sued them. <laughs> and he also threatened them. Right. Uh, and in the end, and he was, so he was convicted, uh, again, of bribery, the same crime. That uh, that's being uh, brought up now, but it was overturned on appeal, and and the appeals court said directly that what the FBI was doing, what the prosecutors were doing, was trying to enforce the rules of a private organization, and that's to me the crux of the issue here. Does the FBI really have a crime? Have they really uncovered a crime here, or is this just another an example of them trying to enforce the rules of a private organization? You know, people are so brainwashed by the idea that the NCA rules are right and to and to oppose them is to oppose you know apple pie uh, that that it's sort of easy to see how the FBI could fall into the idea that that this these these are bad guys and something must be done about them but um, the court court of appeals generally frown on um, uh, uh, prosecutors trying to stretch the law, and I think that's what's happening here. Well, it's just another example of the NCAA's marketing genius, right? About how they got <laughs> us all to buy into the idea that um, their unpaid labor were student athletes, which was a term of art designed to get around worker compensation rules. That's I mean, right. The yep. the fact that the federal government um, has bought into this amateurism thing just shows exactly what you said: how pervasive this is. You know, right. Dan Wetzel of Yahoo makes the correct and obvious point that the way to quote unquote fix this quote unquote problem is just to pay the players their fair market value. But, you know, don't see anybody in the federal government right. <laughs> pointing, pointing that out. Well, uh, let, me, let me say a couple of things about that. First of all, um, you know, the NCA, I, I got a hold of a document maybe a year or so ago from um, the NCA's general counsel where he basically bragged about how uh, if they lost uh, the Kessler case, that's the one that's looking to blow up the amateurism rules, how if they lost that case, they were going to go to Congress and um, or get all the athletic directors and college presidents to go to Congress and, and get a law uh, passed that gave them uh, antitrust uh, exemptions. So, I mean, they're not you know, giving up on this no matter what. And the second thing is, uh, what I've been sort of surprised by in a, in a good way is the extent to which the realization that A, the amateurism rules have created an underground economy, and B, the way to solve this problem is by paying the players, is sort of much more widespread than it would have been even five years ago. Yeah, uh, even on uh, Trevor Noah the other night, um, he, did a, he did a skit around this and... Um, the 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 comedian Michelle Wolf. I mean, she just said, "Yeah, I know. I'm the answer woman. I know the answer. Pay the players." And it 
it's 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 so obvious it's ridiculous so to talk about this from a fandom perspective if you're a fan of let's say auburn or arizona or oklahoma state or usc the places where the coaches um got nabbed or also louisville which was hugely prominent in this report um i think you're kind of like you know, a little upset about the fact that your programs could get on probation or, um, you know, what have you. But the thing that's really interesting that I found in just like following how other fan bases were reacting is sort of like what you were saying, Joe, about the broad realization about how the players should be paid. I think there's a broad realization among college sports fans now that like our program is probably doing this too. And we're not actually that upset about it, but we're just worried that we're not going to be able to see our team in the NCAA right. tournament if it just gets reported in the newspaper. And yet there are still a lot of people who feign shock. I mean, Rick Pitino used the word shock in his joke statement in response to the indictments. So back in June when Louisville signed um, this guy, Brian Bowen, who um, was the one who allegedly got the hundred grand, um, <laughs> He had not been considering Louisville at all um, as, a, as a place to uh, attend university. And then Rick Pedino says on the radio, in my 40-some-odd years of coaching, this is the luckiest I've ever been. Lucky. I won the Kentucky <laughs> Derby with my friend winning it, and this is much better. My friend wouldn't think so, but I do. This is why I've always been more of a Calipari guy. Than a, than a Patino guy, because Calipari, that guy, you know, I think he's a little more honest about what it is that he does and what the NCAA does. You got to watch out. Yeah. You got to watch out for the pious ones or the ones who talk about how important the rules. Yeah. Are. At first, it, it, first of all, it turned out that Patino is in fact coach number two, which came out in the indictment. Mm -hmm. uh, excuse me, in the complaint. And what do we know uh, about coach number two, Joe? Uh, coach number two that knew that the money was being paid. So, you know, this came out actually after he was uh, put on with suspension or whatever he was. I mean, he's that uh, he's the, full the of fact shit, that basically. coach number two is going to cost him forty six million dollars because uh, now they can fire him for cause and they don't have to pay him Louisville for the end of his contract. You know, I was thinking Joe, about can we fans. say that he's full of shit? Patino is full of shit, right? <laughs> uh, you know, I work for Bloomberg. I don't use words <laughs> like that. Uh, you know, I actually feel that the, the fans at Louisville are the ones, I, I, I do feel some uh, pain for them. It's not, they have no pro team. Um, <laughs> The Yum Center. So get this. <laughs> they were just so, getting over that whole prostitution thing, too. Getting over it. They just they were on pro. They're on probation for that. The Yum Center, where they play, they they had such a sweetheart deal that the Yum Center was about to default on its bonds. So the Yum Center renegotiated with the university so that they could at least stay above water. So the university paying a little bit more. So now they're worried that. You know, Louisville's problems means the team won't be that good. Patino won't be there. No one will show up for the games, and they'll still default on the bonds. So there's actually an economic, <laughs> there's a potential economic consequence to this for the city of Louisville. It seems to me like there are two things that could happen here. One is that the right thing happens, that the shoe companies and the TV networks and coaches who don't wind up getting indicted maybe led by Calipari, who's been, as Josh said, above board about a lot of this stuff, 
and the athletes themselves, maybe with the feds brokering a solution and the university presidents recognizing that they've been endorsing this crazy black market for 50 years. I don't mean to interrupt, but that seems more and more implausible with every clause every you add, clause to, I that, add yeah. to that sentence. I mean, they, they just need to get together and dismantle the charade of the NCAA. It really wouldn't be that hard. Of course, the more likely thing is that the NCAA is going to attempt to take the moral high ground here. They're going to thank the feds for bringing to bear their unique abilities to ferret out this kind of crime, which is beyond the scope of the NCAA. We don't have the ability to investigate like this. And they're going to thank the feds for weeding out these bad apples and preserving a system that is all about defending the integrity of our universities and our amateur system. That's probably more likely, but what can happen to try to move us toward the other option? Well, the the only thing that'll move us to the other option, if it is, if it actually turns out that you know the feds wind up, you know, going after fifty schools or sixty schools, you know, instead of at the moment three or four, I mean, if it just becomes so pervasive that it becomes a joke to try and think of anything else, I, I, I think that actually could um, uh, change things. Um, uh, otherwise, I think that's exactly right. In fact, I, th- I could see, I mean, I know this is crazy, but I could sort of see the NCA going to Congress and saying, you know what we really need? We need subpoena power. <laughs> <laughs> Give us subpoena power and we'll clean this all up. <laughs> so back to the sliminess of the assistant coaches, my final thought here is that that's, for me, what really shows the moral bankruptcy of the whole NCA enterprise is because... What we are told by those who are true believers or profess to be true believers is that the players are getting the kind of like moral grounding or like basketball education or some value beyond a monetary one out of being in this situation that they'll be taken care of, that they'll be taught. And they're just being used by these people who want, um, you know, a little bit of cash on the side. But let me add to that by saying, not necessarily in defense of the assistant coaches, but what do these guys have in common? Well, in the case of the ones that were indicted, they are all African-American. Beyond that, they are all subordinate to a higher system. What this prosecution effectively does is it shifts the blame to the minor players in this black market. Great point. The people who are doing the steering of the players and are negotiating everything to get them to teams and high schools and agents and colleges and the people with the actual authority skate. Uh, That's a great point. I would add one other thing. I've always thought um, that one of the really damaging aspects of college football and men's basketball is that it teaches the players to have a deep cynicism about the world, about how the world works. Because what they see is both the charade um, when they're on the court and and how it's portrayed, and then they see the reality, uh, the seamy side that goes on behind the scenes, and they understand completely what a fraud the whole thing is. That's really smart. And my final, final point is that the world is complicated, and these assistant coaches could like genuinely care for the players and also want a little cash on the side. So it's not... um, as simple. And I think that the point that you guys just both made um, is, are, are both good ones. 
Joe Nocera is a columnist for Bloomberg View. He's the co-author of Indentured, the inside story of the rebellion against the NCAA. Joe, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. The baseball playoffs are upon us. And I say this neither to brag or to uh, flagellate myself, but I've not been following the baseball season hugely closely this year. So let's uh, let's just educate me, Josh Levine, on who's in the baseball playoffs. Oh, Twins and Yankees are playing in the wildcard game, Stefan. That's a one-game playoff, Josh. That is a one-game playoff. Rockies and Diamondbacks in the uh, NL wildcard game. Then the Indians are awaiting the Twins-Yankees winner, and the Astros and Red Sox are playing in the AL and the other division series. In the NL, the Nationals and Cubs are playing in the NLDS, and the Dodgers await the Rockies and D-backs winner. Uh, Joining us now to discuss is Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. He's the co-author with Sam Miller of The Only Rule is It Has to Work. And he has a bunch of different podcasts. There's The Ringer MLB Show. There's Effectively Wild. There's a video game one. So we're giving people who don't um, feel like they have enough Ben Lindbergh podcasting in their lives, an opportunity <laughs> to hear him yet again. Ben, always a pleasure. It's a full-time job listening to you <laughs> podcast, Ben. I know it is. Hey, guys, good to be back. Josh, I'm sorry this season hasn't captivated you, but baseball still has a month left to get back into your good graces. <laughs> no, I, I was a really, really big baseball fan as a kid, and my fandom, other than reading Ben Lindbergh articles, I still like really mm-hmm. enjoy reading about baseball. We're getting a bit off topic here. I really enjoy reading. <laughs> I know you're a big Howard Johnson guy. A big no Howard Hojo in the big playoffs Hojo, this year. Big Hojo guy. I really enjoy reading about baseball, thinking about baseball, but watching baseball, I think I'm like not unusual that I do not do a tremendous <laughs> amount of it during the regular season. Yeah. It takes a long time to watch baseball. A lot of games, long games too. So the thing that was really interesting to follow in the last couple months, even if you weren't watching the games, is how the trend of um, you know the favorite in the playoffs is gone. If you look at like empirical systems, like um, whether it's BP or FanGraphs or Five Thirty Eight, it's like the Dodgers like just jumped out to this huge lead, right? And then as they kind of withered away at the end of the year, now the Indians are actually the favorite in a lot of these systems, and the Astros are up there too. Do you think that? that is capturing something that's real about who the playoff favorite is? Or do you think it's just a consequence of regular season games that didn't particularly matter for teams that were going to make the playoffs no matter what? Yeah, it was a really strange season. It was an abnormally lopsided regular season. Only 12 teams finished with winning records. And so the pennant races down the stretch in September were sort of a dud because a lot of teams had already cemented their postseason spots. And I think that was kind of a calm before the storm situation. This is a really strong playoff field, kind of a a best case scenario, probably both for fans and for the league. But yeah, the favorite, I think the consensus favorite has switched a few times 
times this season because for a while there, the Dodgers looked like they would end up being one of the best teams ever. Then they ended up having not only a long winning streak, but also a long losing streak that would be atypical of a team that goes on to win the World Series. They did end up with the best record in baseball, but three teams won over 100 games this year. So the separation between those teams at the top is very small. I do tend to think that the Indians probably are the best team in baseball once you adjust for the fact that they play in the stronger league. The American League, yet again for the umpteenth consecutive year, beat the National League pretty soundly in interleague play. And the Knicks the Indians... also traded Carmelo Anthony to the American <laughs> that League. Too. It still yes, it's, right. gets even stronger every week. <laughs> yeah, and the Indians have... You could make the case, a convincing case, I think, that they have the best pitching staff ever. Certainly, if you go by Fangraph's wins above replacement, (laughs) they have surpassed those mid-90s Braves teams of Maddox, Glavin, Smoltz, etc. as the team with the highest wins above replacement ever from their pitching staff. So that should serve them well in the postseason. They have a deep bullpen, a very deep starting rotation, and a pretty good offense, too. They kind of do everything well, but the Dodgers, obviously, it was not an accident that they ended up with the best team in baseball, the best record in baseball. And so you can kind of go overboard with the sequencing, how you end up with that number of wins and, you know, freak out from from week to week as a team is winning every week or losing every week. The Indians, of course, had that crazy 22 game winning streak. So, you know, there's been panic and maybe irrational exuberance about all of these teams at various points in the season. But I think their end of year records roughly reflect who they are. And yet it's the baseball playoffs, so anything can happen. I mean, the Twins mm-hmm. could could win the American League pennant. I mean, it is yes. not out of the realm of, of possibility. The Yankees, everyone had been saying for, for months, are particularly well-constructed for the playoffs. If they can win the one game, they have a good front end of the pitching staff. They have an inordinate amount of power, as I guess so many teams do, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, do you see any variables for, for the way these teams are structured going into the playoffs as to who might have that sort of lineup advantage for a short series? I think there is some truth to that about the Yankees. There have been many attempts to figure out some secret sauce for the playoffs. Right. How do you win in the playoffs? Nate Silver had one well-known attempt at baseball prospectus that was subsequently retired because it didn't prove to be predictive of anything. And I think it's hard to look at historical results and say that this wins in the playoffs or that wins in the playoffs because playoffs are different now than they used to be. It's a different format. There are more teams. There are more off days, which allows you to structure your rotation and your bullpen and and use your pitching staff differently. And we saw really last year was maybe the year when every team realized this, that you can just bring your best bullpen arms out in every single game, essentially. And through that and through skipping the back half of your rotation, you can kind of concentrate your innings in the hands of your very best pitchers. And so if you're a team that is maybe weak at the back of the bullpen or weak at the back of the rotation, that will hurt you over 162 games, but it won't hurt you that much in the playoffs when you can really structure things how you want to. So for those reasons, I do think the Yankees have an advantage in the way they're constructed. They have a pretty strong top three of the rotation or so. It gets weaker after that, but that won't hurt them. And they have the best bullpen in baseball probably in the second half after they made a number of additions at the trade deadline. They really can just go with a new guy every inning from the fifth inning on and be dominant. And then they do have the playoff team lineup that is most 
dependent on home runs. And there is this perception that in the playoffs, you can't just sit back and wait for home runs. You have to make things happen and put the ball in play and manufacture runs. I think that's actually the opposite of the case because in the playoffs, you run into the best pitching and the best defense. And so if your game plan on offense is to string a bunch of singles together, that's not going to work quite so well at this time of year. So I think the team that does structure its scoring around home runs is actually more optimized for the playoffs. There are a lot of really good um, potential stories Yeah, this year's playoffs. Um, the Astros are fascinating because isn't it great when a plan comes together, Ben? <laughs> like this yeah. is exactly like how <laughs> – I mean, maybe it's not all that infrequent, but it's just remarkable how the Astros set out to do an exact thing vis-a-vis roster construction Mm -hmm. and team building. And it worked in exactly, it seems, the time frame that they wanted it to work on. And now they're one of the best teams in baseball. And who knows how they'll do in the crapshoot of the playoffs. But like, you know, congratulations to them. (laughs) Yeah, no. And we're coming on the heels of the Cubs doing exactly the same thing last year, maybe with even more success. I've heard a lot of people give credit to basketball for pioneering this strategy. I heard Malcolm Gladwell call it hinkyism recently. And I would argue that baseball was there first with the tanking terribly and then getting better on the other end of that. I would give the Astros some credit for being a, a trendsetter there. Obviously, they had a few awful, abysmal seasons where they were winning 50-something games, but the plan did come together. And so, yeah, you have this great mix of playoff teams where you have a handful of teams who've never won a World Series, including the Astros and the Rockies. The Nationals Expos franchise has never even been in a World Series. No DC baseball team has won a World Series since 1924. Sorry, you guys, because I know you're in the area. And then you have the Indians with the 60 year, 68 year drought. You've got the Dodgers who haven't won since 88, the Twins since 91. And then from a ratings national attention standpoint, you still have the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Cubs, and the Dodgers in this playoff field. So there's kind of something for everyone here. Almost any matchup would have some kind of compelling angle to it. The Nationals are really fascinating to me. And I don't know, just to be clear, it does not at all bother me that DC hasn't won a <laughs> World Series, just just so you know, Ben. Yeah. Um, you don't have to feel bad about that. Okay. But the Nationals have been so good for the last five or so years, right? Mm-hmm. And they've just faced kind of a different crisis every postseason. There was the shutting down of Steven Strasburg, I think perhaps most memorably. And Strasburg has been so amazing since coming back um, off the disabled list, as he often does, uh, that is coming off the disabled list during during a season. I think mm-hmm. the lowest ERA and some, you know, after the All-Star break and like some innumerable uh, amount of time. But um, for Strasburg and for Bryce Harper, who's also coming off injury, this feels like one of those postseasons that, and generally this is unfair, this is a big moment for them in their careers and will be written as such. And to add to that, Max Scherzer comes off the mound the other day with a little tweak in his back and panic ensues. There is this feeling among this the the fan base here in Washington, which is not an old fan base, let's be honest. This is a fairly young team, and I'm by young I mean a new franchise. They only got here in 2005, um, but there has been this continuing sense of oh no, something is going to go wrong. Mm-hmm. But na- Nationals and Dodgers would be the fan bases that would be the most upset at a flameout, right? 
That's probably the case. And those are the two teams with the most wins in baseball since 2012, the Dodgers and the Nationals. And this Nationals team has not won a playoff series. They've they've come across ways to lose every year, despite mostly being in the playoffs and being good. And I don't chalk that up to anything other than the randomness of baseball's playoff format. Of course, some people well, they haven't have had a great, they've pathetic. never had a good bullpen, right? Yeah, that's been a problem. And that was a, a big problem at the beginning of this season that was kind of rebuilt on the fly at the deadline. They acquired half a bullpen basically at the July trading deadline and kind of patched things up. But there is a lot at stake here because this current core is kind of coming to it, the end of its time together. After next year, you'll be facing free agents for Strasburg, for Harper, Jason Worth is getting old. So this core is not going to be together for a long time in all likelihood. It doesn't mean that they're not going to continue to be a competitive team, but all these guys who've been getting to the playoffs every year, this is one of their last chances to win one together. And this is just a team with a lot of star power. Max Scherzer is probably the best pitcher in the National League. You have Harper, you have Rendon, you have you know, Trey Turner, you have just a lot of really exciting... Daniel Murphy. Yeah, Daniel Murphy, sure, former Met. You have all sorts of star power on this team. So there is a lot of pressure on them. And as you mentioned, on the Dodgers, just because they got out to that incredible start to the season and, and it looked like they would just roll all the way. And I think there's still a, a fundamental misunderstanding maybe of how unlikely the favorite in any given playoffs is to actually win. This is not basketball where you can almost predict the series matchup before the season starts. This is baseball and anything can happen. One of the reasons, Ben, that this season seemed a little weird is that the focus was so intensely on home runs and the baseball. Um, there was a record number mm-hmm. of home runs hit for the season. What was the final total? 5,800 something? 6150. 6150. Yeah. Um, and that really, I thought, helped. I mean, effectively distracted a lot of attention. I mean, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. It's a great, fascinating story. Why are so many people hitting even 18 or 20 home runs? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it was, I mean, you can fill us in on what some of the, the statistical indices that were broached here. But as a, as a, as a talking point, I don't know how great this is for baseball. And as a watching point, I don't know how much evidence we have that the home run barrage um, and all of the attendant conversation around it makes the sport better. Just to interrupt briefly, you know, as Ben said at the top of the segment, there were just no pennant races. So what else was there to talk about? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was definitely one of the dominant storylines this season. There were 412 more home runs hit than the previous high, which was in 2000 in the height of the so-called PED era. MLB claims that fans are happy with this brand of baseball. MLB also claims that the baseball itself is probably not different, which I don't really buy. But MLB <laughs> says fans happy. Yes. I haven't seen the survey or the survey results, but they claim that fans like home runs, which is not implausible. I have talked to many people who, who say the same. I think probably there's some casual fans who might not even realize that this is a home run high. I think you could drop in and watch any single team or games here to here or there and, and not realize that this is dramatically different home run rate than in the past. But I think it could get to a point where it cheapens the accomplishment in a sense when your little middle infielder is hitting 20 home runs and everyone is reaching that point and maybe it, it just it's not as rare so it doesn't feel as special. And I don't know. I think 
baseball is perpetually changing and perpetually causing panic about whether it's dying and whether the newest trend is going to kill it and make it less watchable. And I don't know that that's the case. I think there are things baseball could do to correct this if it decides that this is not the way they want the game to go. There are pluses and minuses, but just as an intellectual exercise to figure out why this is happening, that has kind of dominated a lot of baseball writing over the last couple of years because this was so steep and so sudden and so dramatic. Ben Lindberg is a writer for The Ringer. He's the co-author with Sam Miller of The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, and he is the co-host of every podcast. <laughs> My pleasure, guys. Thank you. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now it is time for Afterballs. And Ben, you wrote a piece about uh, the worst team in baseball. <laughs> Who was that team? The Salina Stockade of the American Association. We wanted to honor the Salina Stockade for their accomplishment. What can you tell us about this storied franchise? I can tell you that they finished 18 and 82 this year. I went to see them in Salina, Kansas. They were not actually a Salina, Kansas team. They barely played there. They were a road team, a traveling team. So they were always the away team, even when they did play in Salina. They didn't even get last licks in Salina. They were put together from scraps of a lower league, the Pecos League, just on an emergency basis when a team dropped out of this indie league, the American Association, right before opening day. They said, we need to get a team to fill the schedule so we can play baseball this season. Who's around? We'll just get a bunch of guys from this lower league. They were outclassed, but they were resilient. <laughs> I think you could you could say they were an inspiring story and also a depressing story. And I heartily recommend the piece that Ben wrote about this team for The Ringer. Um, the manager is a fascinating character. I mean, the fact that the 73-year-old guy is managing a baseball team is a remarkable story in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Ben, we will bid you farewell again. And Stefan, I will ask you, what is your stockade? The Twitter account Old Baseball Photos posted an iconic image the other day, which is kind of what it does. It posts iconic baseball images. It showed hundreds of men in suits and fedoras massed outside of Scheib Park in Philadelphia watching a big board that was relaying the play-by-play -play from Game 3 of the 1911 World Series in New York, where the Giants were hosting the Philadelphia Athletics at the Polo Grounds. Up in New York, $5 tickets were getting scalped for $7 and $8. Crazy. But if you wanted to avoid the exorbitant markup and the train fare, you could for free actually follow the game on a brand new device called the Automatic Baseball Playograph. The baseball playograph company had been incorporated with $10,000 in capital in Stamford, Connecticut, only two months earlier. It was a brilliant device, a 30-foot-tall by 50-foot-wide scoreboard featuring a giant replica of a field, the lineups with slots for individual runs, hits, errors, the names of the umpires, an inning-by-inning -inning line score, and live game data, ball strikes, outs, runs, and the most recent play. 
Here's how the player graph worked. Uh, like the scoreboard guys inside the green monster, two dudes were hidden from view behind the player graph wall. Telegraph operators at the game relayed exactly what was happening in pitch-by-pitch pitch detail down to even the type of pitch that was thrown. Then the playograph operators would take the telegraph data and go to work. Slots were cut into the metal board along the baselines and between the pitcher's mound and home if, for instance, Chief Bender of the Athletics threw a curveball to Fred Snodgrass of the Giants. An operator would move a stick that would guide a white ball from the mound to home, either on a curved path for a curveball or a straight path for a fastball. Yes, I chose Chief Bender and Fred Snodgrass because they're fun to say. If Snodgrass then singled to right, the ball would slide on another path to right field. A slot in the middle of the scoreboard would be changed to single. If Snodgrass, say, grounded to first, an out sign would pop up at first, and everyone would be mad at Fred Snodgrass. Think about how remarkable this must have been for fans in 1911. This was 10 full years before the first radio broadcast of a Major League Baseball game. Fans consumed baseball by by attending a game, hearing about it from someone who was there, or reading about it in the next day's newspaper. Now you could watch every move of the game recreated in real time. It must have seemed like magic. And that is how it was received. An article in the Yale Scientific Quarterly in 1912 detailed the you secrets also, of the playograph. Did you also mention that because it's fun to say? Yes. Yale Scientific Quarterly. Uh, the Yale Scientific Quarterly, Josh, called it an extremely ingenious invention. The Hartford Current said, quote, the men run the bases and catch the ball just as though everything was real. The playograph was responsible for a central and crucial innovation in sports fandom, and that is yelling at an inanimate device about something that is happening far away and is completely out of your control. During the 1913 World Series, the Hartford Current wrote that one really believes he is actually witnessing the game is evident when he hears the applause manifested at a particular favorite's work depicted upon the diamond, when the mechanism showed Collins on third base, a shout, as if by one voice, went up for Baker to bring home the popular Philadelphian. For the first World Series, uh, the Playograph Company installed two boards in New York, one apiece in Philly, Chicago, and Detroit. The Philadelphia Inquirer reported that this machine has been called the ball with human intelligence and has created much wonder wherever it has been shown. The Playograph then spread across the country. I found newspaper stories about Playographs or similar devices created by competing companies erected often in front of newspaper offices, presumably because newspapers had telegraphs, in cities from La Crosse, Wisconsin to St. Peter. Petersburg, Florida to Tucson, Arizona. But radio helped kill the playograph star. In 1923, the original company went out of business, but radio helped kill the playograph star. In 1923, the original company went out of business, but the device did endure for another decade and still attracted thousands of curious fans, sometimes accompanied by a radio broadcast itself. The last mention of a playograph demonstration that I could find was from 1933. It would be almost a century, not quite, another 70 years before the modern playograph, the MLB Gamecast, would make its debut. And the amazing thing, Josh, is the playograph board, it looks exactly like the Gamecast. Like, exactly. That's awesome. If I were the playograph 
family, I would be suing whoever came up with Gamecast. Fred Playagraph is extremely upset right now. Should be. Yeah. Josh, what's your stockade? So this is a rumination. I like a rumination. Let me guess what you'll be ruminating about. So on Saturday night, I fast forwarded through. I had I had DVR'd the LSU Troy game. I'm shocked. Um, like Rick Pitino, that this is what you're discussing. LSU uh, had lost to Mississippi State by a lot of points uh, a couple weeks ago, and Mississippi State has since lost to other SEC teams by a very huge amount of uh, of points. So I don't think I was in, under any illusions that this was going to be a great. LSU team. I did not expect myself to be Googling Ed Ogeron buyout immediately after the game on Saturday night, but this is where we are. Um, so LSU lost to Troy 24 to 21. They paid something on the order of a million dollars and a guarantee for Troy to come and beat them. And I was just kind of, you can help decide. This is what part of the point of this rumination is if I'm being like uh, honest with myself here, but it was just kind of like amusing how bad they were. And I think it's also an opportunity, given that it's so early in the season, for me to check out and not invest as much time or emotional energy in this particular LSU football season. So it's better, for example, than having just this amazing, amazing regular season um, in 2011 into 2012 Maybe one of the best regular seasons in modern college football history, given how many top-ranked teams they beat. And then just not getting across the 50-yard line or barely getting across the 50-yard line in the national championship game against Alabama. Because then you just look back at all the months that you spend watching and thinking and reading and cheering, and it just all ends in this complete and comprehensive humiliation at the hands of your arch rival. Like, that's a much less fun season than the one in which – you like get humiliated by Troy and uh, you know September. It's done. It's done. So, but then on Sunday, the Saints have kind of been middling to bad the last few years, and they like shut out the Dolphins um, in London. Not a very well played game, but the fact that the Saints' defense shut someone out was just remarkable. The Saints are now like two and two. Hey, maybe the Saints could have a good year. Sort of back on the upswing as a football fan. Yeah, two so and two the, is on the road to eight and eight. So <laughs> better than the seven and nine they've been for the last three years. So here's the rumination. Pesca has talked about this as the way that he approaches fandom. This is kind of how I like to approach fandom these days. I think I'm more, I'm definitely more emotionally invested in my teams than I think you are at this stage in your life. And the way that I approach it is try not to get too low after a loss and try to be really happy after a win. Another way to state that though, and this is kind of what I found myself doing over the weekend is when your team loses in like a really bad, humiliating fashion, convince yourself that sports actually don't matter and that the games aren't important and that there's just like other things in life and just like move on and don't think about it for the next five minutes. And then when a team wins in a game that's like maybe not even that consequential, but particularly in like an important game, then you convince yourself that like actually sports are the thing that really binds us together as a society. It's what connects me to my family. It's what brings all of us together in New Orleans and helped us overcome like, you know, hor horrific tragedy. And it's just like brought us together as a community. And like, 
the fact that Drew Brees threw a touchdown pass to Michael Thomas. It just stands for something so much more and greater. So is it a lot? Is it illogical, or does it actually not work that way for me to appreciate the wins and the manner which I seem to want to appreciate them? Do I need to um, acknowledge? the fact that losses actually are important and that the losses actually do matter. Am I just deluding myself? You're overthinking it, perhaps, Josh? Um, Well, for one thing, one way to get over the LSU thing is to think about our conversation about the NCAA and not compartmentalize the game. I totally reject reject that. I'm just giving you an out. That's all. I'm making a suggestion. No, I mean, that would be the totally rational thing to do, but I... I'm irrational about my fandom for these teams. There's no way for me to justify the fact that I care about college sports in the way I do. It's given its moral abhorrence. So I'm like bracketing that. Okay. That's fine. You can bracket it. What's the other reason why I'm overthinking it? Uh, The other reason is that you have to just accept the way you feel. I don't think it's problematic that you're irrationally – I don't like the word problematic, but – Accepting the way that I feel, that's very, uh, very liberating. Uh-huh. Uh, thank you for your sure, support. I'm help. But I'm just wondering if I'm heading for a crash, I guess is the question. Well, but you're a pretty rational human being in spite of your irrational love for college sports. If this team sucks, this team is going to suck. I do resent a little bit. I mean, there is one team that I get irrational about, and that's the U.S. men's soccer team. I still feel that visceral Pang so of, if they lose to Panama on Friday, you're gonna be you're gonna, gonna be, be panging it up. I'm gonna be fucking pissed if they lose to Panama on Friday. You're gonna um, pang up the wazoo. All right, I'm I do burn my my. Uh, I don't have a Pulisic jersey. I can't burn my <laughs> Landon Donovan T-shirt. So all right, final thought is that the problem with signing off on a football season and thinking that that's a victory because of the time and emotional savings that go into it is that. There's a continuation between this year and the next year. And the fact that they have this new regime in, which seems to be a fucking catastrophe, is going to have repercussions for many uh, years beyond. But doesn't doesn't when your college football team suck, isn't that part of the pleasure that one gets? And I don't mean pleasure in something that makes you happy, but part of the visceral um, sensation of being an engaged fan. They're going to suck sometimes. And when they suck, that gives you an outlet to rant and be upset and go on um, message boards under your alias. No, I, I see it quietly. Josh, L-E-V-I-N-E. <laughs> I see it quietly. I don't do any of those things. So I do find um, that with baseball, the having when when the Mets are bad, it is like a great joy in my life because I just don't pay attention. For me, it's just like time savings is the is the boon here. It's not anything about like being able to like be happy because I can be mad. Or yeah, but be then able what if rant. they what if they beat Alabama? That's good. I'll be happy about that. But you will have not watched the game because you'll be saving time. <laughs> yeah, that's a lie. I'm going to watch all the games. I'm just going to not invest as much time maybe between the games. All right, enough ruminating. That is our show for today. Uh, our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and to subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. I am Josh Levine for Stefan Fatsis. Remember Zelmo Beatty and thanks for listening.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> <laughs> 